Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Hoya Community Church. So glad you're here. My name is Dominic. This is Whitley. This is Bob. We're excited to lead you in worship through song. If you're able, would you stand with us as we begin our time? Thanks for being here with us this morning. Worthy of every song we could ever see Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring You're worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you Sing Jesus Jesus, the name above every other Jesus, the only one who could ever say, You're worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Oh, we live for you. Sing holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my eyes in one. Show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever Yeah. 
so glad you're here. Would you take a moment now, greet the community around you and make me feel welcome.
Let us say good morning. Yes, Lord, we are listening. <laughs> Let us say good morning three times. It's like you guys are really loving each other. That's amazing. Keep it up. Keep it up. So I just want to welcome you this morning here at La Jolla Community Church. We equip everyday people to walk with Jesus every day. Who's got a bulletin? It's a little warm. I see some has already taken into the action. But if you look on the front, you can find all the, you can find the top three things that are going on here. If you want more information after the announcements, go to ljcc.org. And first, I just want to welcome those watching online. Thank you. And I want to point your attention to this. And if you're online, there's a prayer and connection card, but we have one physically here. Is that me? Hello? I won't move. I'll stand still. Mannequin challenge right up here. <laughs> We have our prayer and connection card. This is how we connect with people. This is how we get to know each other just a little bit better. If you're a first-time guest or you call this place home, we want to hear from you. We want to connect with you. And we know that we're all humans and we've got a lot of human things going on. And we have relatives and all kinds of stuff going on. And we need prayer. How many people know other? I'm going to switch. We'll go mute on that. We'll bring this one up. Is this working? Ah. I was testing you guys to see if you stay with me. It must be this prayer and connection card must be very important because I have not been able to get out two words about it. But if you have that, we want to hear from you. We want to hear the praise reports and we want to hear the tough things that are going on because we're going to be praying for you throughout the week. We have a team that prays for you and then the staff gets together on Tuesday and they pray for these. But if you don't fill one out, we just don't know. We can't pray for you. We want to pray for you. This, if you want to do it anonymous, just do it that way. When we get together and we start praying, God moves and things start to happen. Well, let me bring us to our announcement. Next Sunday is going to be our family service. It's, we're a multi-generational church, some might say, but I'll say we're an intergenerational. We say multi, and it's like everybody's got their own little pocket we can live in. We're intergenerational because those little pockets, we go together and we know that we're a family. So the old and the young and the young and the old and the middle and everybody's getting together and working for the common purpose of spreading the gospel in this neighborhood, living for Christ in this neighborhood. So that would be next Sunday. And I want to encourage you to be here. If you're one of the parents, you're like thinking, oh, I got to mark that on my calendar. I don't want to bring my kids into the service. Just bring them in. It's going to be okay. If you're the person thinking, oh my gosh, they're going to bring those kids in the service. It's going to be okay. If you have birth through first, the little ones, they'll be in their normal programming. Everybody else will be in here. And I guarantee you, it's going to be an amazing speaker. Not as good as today's, but the one next week's going to be far more attractive. He looks a lot like me. So it's just going to be, it's going to be great. <laughs> also, next announcement, our men's steak night. How many people know men? How many are men? Just, just six of us. <laughs> Ladies, if you know a man, get him one of those invitations. Last week I said, we need to invite people because this is a great opportunity for guys to connect. And I want to tell you guys what I did. I invited 10 people. And I got three people said they're going to be here. That's 30% return. I'll take that all day. So now the challenge is to you, men and women, inviting people to get them here for that steak dinner. It's going to be August 8th, 6.30 p.m., right out there. And if they're a vegetarian, we'll have salad and potatoes. It will be okay. Everything will work out. And our next announcement is our parenting your kids in Christ. Parents, do we always get it right? Just ask your kids. They'll tell you. But this is a great opportunity to, to say, how do we speak to our kids with, about Christ? How do we speak to them about these tough issues? How do we teach them about prayer? How do we teach them about all these different things? And our very own Greg Ellert is going to be here. He's going to be teaching it for us. It's going to start on August 12th after the second service. 
He's done it at other churches and it was wildly successful. So RSVP to Greg, if you're interested or you're thinking about being interested, it's gonna be an amazing time. We're gonna have lunch provided. Our next thing is about our, our, our guest speaker. And I was here for the first service. Amazing, just hold on to your seat. But uh, I wanna make a little note. We had uh, three people lined up to announce Mr. Steve Haas. And uh, the first one went in for surgery for a sciatica. The other one went into a positive surgery. And then Steve decided he was gonna move him and Janet to a safe bunker somewhere outside the United States because he didn't want to be next. So that put it squarely on my shoulders. Uh, the man today is Steve Haas. He's been heavily involved with uh, World Vision. He's their catalyst. That means he makes things happen. I'm gonna tell you, he's gonna make things happen today. He's been leading executives of Fortune 500 companies to also doing refugee relief work on the Cambodian Vietnam border. Let's welcome a longtime friend to La Jolla Community Church, Mr. Steve Haas. That a little bit better. Oh, I'm giving the thumbs up. This is always good. Great way to start when the guy in the back is doing this. It's great stuff. Well, I, about a, a month after I was here, last time I was here with you, I got an email. Uh, it was one of those emails that gives you tremendous amount of pause. It was from a very dear friend that I had grown up with. Uh, she had gotten married, has two sons in high school, and this was the email uh, concerning her son, her oldest son. Judson's gone. We don't know where he is. He says he's not coming back. Please pray for his safety. And just a flood of emotions. If you knew Judson, uh, you'd understand. Uh, this was a, a kid who was doing great academically in a private school in the Northeast. Uh, athletically, he was doing fantastic as well. These were all the prospects for these kids were all up and to the right. And suddenly he just decides to tank it all and leave and doesn't want anything to do with family back home. At the same time this was going on, if you remember, historically, it was only a year ago, uh, there was a march that was about to happen in Charlottesville. Do you remember that? And I just had all sorts of um, difficult feelings because I do a lot of race and ethnic work. And so just the thought that in our own country we could have such diametrically opposed groups about to confront one another was really causing me to churn. So, all this is going on at the same time of this loss of this young man. And then about three days after that, we find out that Judson, unbeknownst to his parents, had been groomed by some older adults on the internet over the last six to eight months, and he was in Charlottesville to march. Long story short, he saw the amount of weapons that were actually being holstered by the men who were going to march. Uh, most of them were men. And he got scared. And so one of the guys who was actually organizing the event said, you should stay behind. This probably isn't a good event for you. And so while they were marching, he was getting on a bus to come back home, thoroughly disillusioned. And I just began to think, given all of the cultural, racial, ethnic, and every kind of obstacle to human interaction that currently exists, how are we as Christ followers supposed to relate? 
Did you ever ask yourself that question? What might the scripture teach about relational next steps given our world? The world we live in here. I'm not talking about another country. I'm talking about this country. Is there something that you and I can do that's other than disregard, hibernate, or cringe that actually makes a difference? Is there? What does scripture have to say? What, you, what should you and I do? How are we supposed to relate? Well, today you can find an entirely new genre of writing out there that's dedicated to understanding racial and ethnic understanding these divides and starting to heal. The one thing you will notice in my short amount of research and a lot of this wealth of material is that all of them say we got to start seeing things just a little bit differently. we got to open our eyes that that's really important. In April of uh, this year, I traveled with some Christian philanthropists to a, a Malawi in Tanzania. I know that you're very active in this group. Why Malawi? And I'm really delighted that you're doing that. I was one of the people that was a part of kind of the beginnings of that. And so it's really fun to see a congregation still sending people out to Malawi. And our purpose in this particular venture was to take these philanthropists to see what happens in the African food crisis how do you begin to interact when you have a Category 5 disaster that's happening and that no one knows it's happening? Literally from Ethiopia to the east to the Democratic Republic of the Congo to the west, you've got this food crisis that's going on, largely because of bad governance, people displacement, people violence, and so. And so a lot of people are at risk. And it was our hope to show these investors how to invest properly, how to invest in things that are sustainable, they're going to make change. And one of the trip's highlights was visiting a World Vision program for small landholder farmers. The whole uh, object is to pay attention to these people, to give them appropriate training. And it's actually right now what some economists are saying is game-changing in that part of Africa. It's called Transforming Household Resilience in Vulnerable Environments. Only a development guy could come up with a wonky title <laughs> like that. At World Vision, we have acronyms. And so we just call it a title I really like, Thrive. That's what it's called, Thrive. Thrive teaches small landholder farmers modern agricultural techniques and also animal breeding uh, methodologies. All this built on a foundation that you and I would call a biblical worldview. Since they work with people that don't honor the Bible as well, they call it an empowered worldview. I like that term maybe even better. And since the introduction of this program, we've seen 10 to 50, 60% yields of the farmers that take this program. And you know what happens when you're a farmer. I don't expect a lot of farmers here today. I was in Iowa recently. There are a lot of farmers in the congregation. But when I talk about farming, what farmers do is they look over the fence and see what other farmers are doing. And then they copy it. So you start Thrive and Thrive starts developing and organizing and it just keeps growing and growing and growing. It teaches them this empowered worldview. Well, what is that empowered worldview? What's the secret sauce here? Thrive begins with you. It says that you are not a cosmic accident. Thrive teaches that the God of the universe who has created you has a part for you to play. Every one of you, you have a part to play. Thrive proclaims that God isn't angry with you, a common misconception of many landholder farmers, that he's got a purpose for your life, that you were made in his image, and that that image, as an image bearer, he's given you certain skills and certain resources that have to be put into play. So in short, Thrive says that you are God's created, marked by him, dearly loved, and by the way, get to work. You got stuff to do. 
Now this, this image of God thing, what you and I would call the Imago Dei, it's on everyone. This isn't for some elite group of religious troops. This is for everybody. This is God's unseen seal of approval. And he marks everyone with it. It's on Billy Graham. It was on Billy the Kid. It was on Nancy Reagan. It's on Nancy Pelosi. Why is that important? Because most impoverished landholder farmers don't see themselves this way. They don't. They've, they're undergoing daily obstacles and roadblocks and failures to such an extent that no one sees themselves as special. No one sees themselves as worthy of attention. God is not remotely engaged, even though I might worship him in church. And you just survive enough hits, you, you begin to see that it's much easier to see yourself as cursed. You're an object of God's wrath. Uh, you, you aren't getting any rescue because God has divine disinterest in you. You're a distraction. You're an inconvenience. His beloved? Hardly. By the way, in the first service, I just got this incredible sense that some of you are not altogether different from small landholder farmers. And there's a chance that even as I'm speaking right now, you're saying, oh my gosh, I've been outed. Because I view God that way. Anyone relate? Anyone know of someone who relates? This may not be self-evident, but critical to Thrive methodology, before a small landholder farmer can actually see their world and what they're to do in it, they have to see themselves and why they were placed in it. And then they have to look at themselves in relation to their neighbor, in relation to the earth in which they've been planted. And that this becomes critical if they're actually going to see around themselves. Thrive says it's all about relationships. It teaches that men and women have a broken relationship with God. That they misunderstand God's purposes for the world. That we have a broken relationship with our neighbor. I don't think I need to give you an illustration. The evidence is all around us. We have a broken relationship with ourselves. And by the way, we also have a broken relationship with the earth. These fractured relationships, it's not the way God intended it, nor does he want it to stay that way. Every farmer has to partner with God in his transforming work of reconciling all things, including the earth in which they are managing. Thrive begins where we all begin. They need to have a sight adjustment. How we see ourselves, how we see one another, how we see the resources we've been given, and how we're supposed to deploy those resources into the world. By the way, one of the... Uh, Thrive students is this guy named Tony Okoth. He uh, found himself unemployed. He couldn't find a job in uh, Malawi. It's impossible for him to find a job as a teacher that just seemed to be nothing for him. And so he decided, I'll just take Thrive. I mean, they're offering it, it's free. And so he started learning some modern ag techniques, some animal husbandry methods. And this is what he said, and I quote, you are, this is what he heard, you are created in God's image and likeness, and that's a big privilege. That's what he told us, that's what he heard. And Tony reasoned, this is, I quote, God can't, cre God can't create in his own likeness and expect me to be poor. Unless you think he's gotten some health, wealth, gospel. He says, I am now a tool of God. What can I do? I have a responsibility. I come from a community. What can I give back to the community? 
What can I do that will change lives? So, so he opens his eyes and he starts noticing there's a lot of younger people than himself who are just listless. They're on drugs, they're getting government dole. They're just not doing anything. And so this is the big idea he has. We gotta stop this. And I quote, let's work together and do something that can change lives. Let's do some farming. That went over with their community about as well as it would go over here. Let's just do some farming. And you notice no one was listening to his message. So what he did have is he had rabbits. And so he took one of those rabbits and he cooked it for some of these quote unquote youth group that he formed. You can just see this thing beginning to grow. And so one of the students said, I like the rabbit. Could I have one? So he gave him a rabbit and he told them how to take care of the rabbit. And pretty soon they start selling the rabbits because the rabbits keep growing. <laughs> and then they formed a co-op because they could get a better price. And then they raised and sold dairy goats. And then they created a kale farm. And then they purchased five acres of land. And then they signed school contracts because the schools wanted the food that they had. And he told me that they've just hired now new, four new motorcycles. Because of course you gotta get the produce out. And the best part, Tony said, I'm a teacher. I'm a teacher. Thrive says it's all about relationships, but of course you know that. You know that, don't you? Gordon MacDonald says in his book, The Resilient Life, a careful study of the Bible will lead one to realize something many of us were not adequately taught when we were young, that the Bible is about relationships and that no one is a complete human being apart from the context of these relationships. It's a truly Christian perspective. But relationship with who? Who am I supposed to be in relationship with? And for Jesus, relationship was the primary message. We don't see, we miss the image of the divine. We make judgments based on appearance, someone's approach, our own insecurity. We retreat to relating to only those people that are like us. You see this all the time. You see it in the New Testament. We just don't read it as such. Luke 7, Jesus is in a meal with Simon the Pharisee and a woman comes in and she breaks an alabaster jar of nard on his feet and then she begins to bathe it with her hair, kind of mop it up with her hair. Do you remember? And she's probably a woman based on inference that probably gets most of her income at night. <laughs> Jesus says, do you see this woman? Simon the Pharisee asked, relationship with who? He could have said it. Relationship with who? The hooker? Luke 10, 30. The priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the religious leaders could have weighed in. Relationship with who? The dead guy in the ditch? Seriously? Luke 15, the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, the older brother asked, relationship with who? That son of yours? Matthew 25, 11, the parable of the talents. I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out and I hid my gold in the ground. So here is what belongs to you. Relationship with who? This hard-charging, tight-fisted money manager? There's a story, it's probably fictitious, of a young fugitive that found himself into a small village and they started taking care of him. They gave him something to eat and gave him some safety and then the army found out where he was and so they came in and they said you either cough up that guy or by dawn tomorrow we will burn down this village and we'll kill all your men 
The people went to a minister and they asked him, what do we do? And torn between the giving up of this one individual or seeing their whole village destroyed, the pastor said, I'm going to go away for the night and read and pray and see what happens. And in the middle of the night, he came upon these words. It is better that one man dies than that the whole people be lost. And so with that, the minister closed his Bible, called the soldiers, told them where the boy was hidden. And you can imagine the village the next day. There's a big celebration. After all, one was taken, but everyone was saved. But the minister, he couldn't celebrate. He was overcome with a deep sadness, and he went away and remained in his room. And at night, an angel came to him and said, what have you done? And he said, well, I, I handed the fugitive over to the enemy. And the angel said, don't you know that you handed over the Messiah? How could I know? Said the pastor somewhat anxiously. And the angel said, if instead of reading your Bible, you had visited this young man just once and looked into his eyes, you would have known. In the run-up to Jesus' death at Calvary, the Roman judge Pontius Pilate sees a bloodied religious revolutionary. The religious leaders see a usurper of their authority. The mob, they just see a political disappointment. And then all of them unite and find a scapegoat. Relationship with who? None of them see the savior of the world. It begins with seeing, and Jesus said, and I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was a stranger and you visited me. I was, Lord, when did we see you like that? Both of them, sheep and goats say that. Like, like those that Jesus walked in were sight selective. I see and I don't see. Right now, I see that I'm standing here speaking to you. I see that you are well-dressed and I'm gonna guess you're intelligent. I don't see. I don't know what's competing for your attention right now. I don't know that some of you are contemplating a relational break. Some of you are thinking about the promotion you got this week. Some of you are wondering how you look. Some of you are wondering what's for lunch. And admittedly, some of you are saying, what am I doing here? And what I just said didn't make you feel any more safe. And tragically, my blindness shows itself most profoundly when I'm with persons or groups that aren't like me. Maybe it's their cultural or their religious exterior. Maybe it's something about the, their look or their smell or their disheveled state. The truth is, it doesn't take much for me to miss the divine image when someone is impoverished, smudged, or overlooked, or incarcerated. I miss the image. I don't see well. And evidently that was the cultural practice of Jesus' day. All these different kinds of people, and so people need to frame them up. There's neighbors, there's non-neighbors, there's enemies, there's friends, there's those like us, there's those not like us, there's us, there's them. Our passage this morning, and I was thinking, you probably are wondering when we're going to have our passage. Matthew 5. You have heard that it is said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? 
Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only those of your own people, what are you doing more than the others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. You gotta ask yourself the question, what could Jesus possibly be saying here? The telltale sign of a Jesus follower, a true disciple, the thing that really registers that Jesus qualifies as perfect, award-winning behavior, isn't so much simply recognizing the God image on people like you. You don't even get a pink participant ribbon for that. That's normative behavior of all of us. The engagement that really transformed, the one that identifies the divine image and then seeks to engage with people not like you. That's the difference. Better, if you really want to stand out as true sons and daughters of the Most High God, reach out and know the ones that offend you, really cause you grief, repulse you, the ones you can't stand. This one's a hard one. You and I were created, created to be bridge builders. And what happens, by the way, if I decide I don't want to do that? I have freedom. I don't want to do that. I like most of the Bible. This portion I don't like. I don't want to do that, God. Thank you so much. When you and I don't do that, then a community transforming event goes away. The community glue goes away. We have a community like the one we're living in right now. I'm not talking about La Jolla. I'm talking about Tacoma. I'm a big studier of World War II history. I don't know why, I just, I find that a fascinating era of time in world history. I've always been taken by the German Lutheran pastor, Martin Niemöller, who spoke of the cowardice of German intellectuals following the Nazis' rise to power and the subsequent purge of their chosen target, group by group. This is what he said. First they came for the communists, but I didn't speak out because I wasn't a communist. And then they came for the trade unionists, but I didn't speak out. I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews. I didn't speak out. I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for me. And there was no one left to speak out for me. As many of you know, over the last uh, 15 years, I've been fairly involved in uh, ministry and work in Israel and the West Bank, both on the Israel side and that within, within Palestine. And uh, the Arab Christian population is really falling. It used to be around 17 to 20%, now it's hovering a little over 1%. And on one of those trips, I sat in with the former Palestinian Authority Prime Minister, Salim Fayyad. He's a brilliant man. And he told a group of us that the Arab Christian, I quote, the Arab Christian church is the buffer between Palestinian Muslims on one side and Israelis on the other while being less than 2% of the society. The whole reason he was meeting with us was to plead with us, please help this community stay. It's what's holding us together. By the way, Fayyad's a Muslim. When you and I register the Imago Day and build bridges into our belief system, we actually start agreeing with the Hebrew scriptures. When it talks about belief, it's not enough that you just have psychological assent to a notion. It's that you follow it with action. That's true belief for the Hebrew. To truly believe something, you have to show up. Your actions have to be in alignment with your belief. 
And if we're going to be about relationships, it's not enough that we have to think about it. We've got to engage in it. We have to be with those that are not like us. In 2015, some of you will remember there was a shooting down in Garland, Texas. Evidently, someone hit on the bright idea of kind of uh, uh, riling or inciting religious tension by having a contest to see who could do a cartoon of the Muslim prophet Muhammad. And two young men from an Arizona mosque decided that they could not allow that to happen. They had been radicalized some years before. They were sometimes a tender of this mosque, and so they traveled with flak jackets and weaponry, and they were going to go and shed some blood. Unfortunately, and fortunately, unfortunate for them, fortunate for the people that were at this conference, uh, they were both gunned down by people guarding that event before they really ever got out of their car. Now there's some stuff you may not know. A close friend of mine by the name of Adam, uh, a Christ follower, a public school teacher who had learned Arabic and in Lebanon had actually been sent back from the body in Lebanon to come back to Arizona. They said, why are you here? You should be ministering to your own community in Phoenix. So he took that seriously and he started building a relationship with the imam of that particular mosque. Well, you can imagine what was gonna happen next. Very quickly, an anti-Muslim demonstration was called to descend on that mosque in this Second Amendment-loving, open-carry state. Everybody was freaked. What's a Jesus follower to do in that real-world situation? Well, Adam called the president of the mosque board and asked him how he could serve him. He was told that the FBI are already alerted. They're on high alert. The police are going to be there in force. There's going to probably be a lot of weapons. And the imam admitted that he was terrified. He was shamed by what had happened. He said, this isn't the way we've raised our children. And I'm embarrassed, but I'm also scared. He said, Adam, if you could just be with me, that would mean everything. Well, Adam did more than that. He started calling churches in Phoenix and inviting all the churches who wanted to to come and provide a cordon of security for the mosque. Can you imagine? And so when Saturday rolled around, here were the church people outnumbering the demonstrators as they ringed the mosque with signs saying crazy stuff like, Love your neighbor. God is love. All truth. Adam told me this week as I was talking to him to recount that story, he said, I've never been scared, more scared than I was in that moment. All I knew was that Jesus was calling me to do this. And if the shoe was on the other foot, these Muslim friends would have asked me to show, uh, they would ask if they could show their sign of support. Well, it went without anyone being injured in fact, even one of those gentlemen that had an F Islam on his T-shirt, when invited into the mosque, took his shirt and turned it inside out and sat and watched a Muslim worship service and walked out and said, I've got some thinking to do. All being led by Christians on the arm of followers of Jesus in terms of their own neighborhood. Monday night following, the interface service was called by the mosque. Adam and a pastor were asked to share for 45 minutes. This is what he was told, his only instruction. We don't want to hear about Christianity. We just want you to talk about Jesus. Hear what he's saying. Hear what he's saying. I don't want your structure. I want the person you follow. Can you do that? They did that. A Muslim dentist and friend who sat in the service said, a lot of people talk about faith, but you and your church demonstrated you lived your faith. Thank you, profoundly thank you. Ivo Patel, in a graduation address at the University of Illinois, said this year, last month, 
Right now, more than anything, we need people who will dare build bridges. The essential structure in a diverse democracy is a bridge. Diversity work isn't principally about embracing more of the differences you like. It's engaging positively with the differences you don't like. The purpose of the bridge is to connect you with people that don't instinctively view you view as your own. Such bridges don't fall from the sky. People build them. People build them. There's a plot of line outside of Bethlehem right now that's surrounded by five, uh, uh, five of these settlements that are looking to encroach. They go in on a regular basis and burn the trees of this particular Palestinian's land, who he's had since the Ottoman Empire. He's got paperwork for it. The sign going into his farm called the Tent of Nations, Tent of Nations is, I refuse to be an enemy. He's made a volitional choice. I will not be your enemy. I will be your friend. I may not like what you do, but I will not be forced into a game of one-upsmanship on how I can degrade you as a human being because you have the image of God in you too. Patel adds this, for those who still want to criticize, I think the world belongs to the leader, not the critic, the builder, not the scolder. You shouldn't be a judge on the Food Network show if you've never managed a kitchen. <laughs> I go back to scripture. If we're gonna be called children of our Father in heaven, we have to begin to transform our sight. We have to start seeing our, our job as bridge builders with people that aren't like us. And this can't be a one-off, this sacrifice that has to be involved, most notably by our time we commit, by the, the energy we give, by the material resources that you and I begin to give. We do in what the scripture calls mercy, doing mercy. Now I know when I say mercy, people have a very uh, set idea of what mercy is. It's kind of that quality of punishment reduction. It's a little bit below grace and slightly above judgment. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, you know what I'm talking about because if you were ever pulled over by the CHP, you are hoping for grace, right? <laughs> You're hoping for the guy to come up and say, you know, I, I know on my jug gun it says 96, but you know, I'm feeling good today and I want you to feel good. And by the way, you look good and I'm going to let you go. You just have a nice day. That's grace. That's grace. You don't want judgment. It says 96 on my gun, and I know how to write 96, and so does your insurance carrier. And so does the time in which you go before a judge, and he will fry you by the letter of the law the way it's supposed to be. Have a nice day. That's judgment. Most of us know we'll probably get away with something like mercy. It says 96, but I'm going to write 70. Have a nice day. I read my scripture... And mercy isn't described like that. In the third book of the New Testament, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus, in a directive to his disciples following the Sermon on the Mount, says, Be merciful, just as your Father in heaven is merciful. Well, a good question for us to ask is, what kind of mercy is that? And I grew up with the King James Version of the Scriptures, and so in Exodus 34, when I'm looking at mercy, I see this, The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression in sin. In other passages, I read about God's tender mercies. I, somebody has actually taken this so well. Jack Alexander in this new book called The God Impulse. This is what he says when commenting on mercy. This core attribute extends to God's steadfast love. He's not just withholding punishment we deserve. He's giving us the love we so desperately need. 
When someone hurts me, my visceral reaction is to hurt them back. When someone makes me feel uncomfortable, is an inconvenience, isn't worth my time or energy, I turn away. I look for an, in, I look for an exit. My inclination, like the priest and the Levite, is to stay on the other side of the road, the safe place. But God, unfortunately, has equipped me with his Holy Spirit. He says there's another tactic. Not just to see, not just to engage, but to do mercy, to endure, to endure. One of the Apostle Paul's favorite word is this word, upomone in the Greek. It just means patient endurance. Hanging in there. Keep going. Don't stop. Don't stop. I want to close with a passage from a book that meant a lot to me in high school. It's that old. Uh, by a guy named Malcolm Mungridge. I don't know why someone got me on to reading Malcolm Mungridge. He was a social critic of his time. David Frost, if you remember the great interviews of David Frost, David Frost says the greatest interview he ever did in his life was with Malcolm Mungridge. His brain, he said, was so expansive. A journalist, British satirist, he died in 1990, but he wrote a book called Something Beautiful for God. It's what opened the world to Mother Teresa. Many people have said this is where we got introduced to her. And this is what he had to write about Mother Teresa in Calcutta. I called to mind a particular incident that greatly affected me at the time to the point that it sometimes came into my dreams. I was being driven one evening in my car when my driver knocked someone over. Something as easily done then as now with the crowded pavement spilling over the roadway with great resourcefulness and knowing the brawls could so easily develop when a European car was involved in a street accident, my driver jumped out, grabbed the injured man, put him in the driver's seat beside him and drove away at top speed to the nearest hospital. There I rather self-righteously insisted on seeing that the man was properly attended to. And as it turned out, he wasn't seriously hurt. And being a sahib, I was able to follow him into the emergency ward. It was a scene of inconceivable confusion and horror with patients stretched out on the floor in the corridors everywhere. And while I was waiting, a man was brought in who had just cut his throat from ear to ear. It was too much. I made off back to my comfortable flat and a stiff whiskey and soda to expatiate through the years to come on Bengal's wretched social conditions and what a scandal it was and how it was greatly to be hoped that the competent authorities would, and so on. I ran away and stayed away. Mother Teresa moved in and stayed. That's the difference. She, a nun, slightly built with a few rupees in her pocket, not particularly clever or particularly gifted in the arts of persuasion, just with this Christian love shining about her, in her heart, on her lips, just prepared to follow her Lord, and in accordance with his instructions, regard every derelict left to die in the streets as him. To hear in the cry of every abandoned child, even in the tiny squeak of a discarded fetus, the cry of the Bethlehem child. To recognize in every leper's stumps the hands that once touched sightless eyes and made them see. Rested on distracted heads and made them calm. Brought back health to sick flesh and twisted limbs. As for my expatiations on Bengal's wretched social conditions, I regret to say that I doubt whether in any divine accounting they will equal one single quizzical half-smile bestowed by Mother Teresa on a street urchin who happened to catch her eye. Now, as I read that, you might think what I'm really asking you to do today 
is become Mother Teresa. And you would be profoundly wrong. Because I don't think that's what God wants. It's certainly not what he says in his text of scripture. When you open your eyes and begin to really see, concentrate, what are you looking at? How is the image of God being formed in the individual you're seeing? When we actually see that way, when we engage, and when we decide that we're going to stay in, hang in, it's not that we become Mother Teresa. We become profoundly you. You become you, the way God created you to be. And when you do that, you create social cohesion in your little part of the world that begins to glue the community to the very foundation itself. Standing back and castigating doesn't do anything but keep everything broken. But when we as followers of Jesus are literally listening for minute to minute instruction, even to the point of, as one woman said after the first service, I think he's told me to do that with my family. One of the hardest places to begin, but one of the most essential. And I engage and I, then I start following this one that saw me, saw me, saw you, and became like one of us and engaged to the point of death, sacrifice on a cross. So that now as his follower, I can do that in Tacoma, I can do that here, I'm an ambassador without portfolio. I can go anywhere. And I can put relationships back together, empowered by him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to just take a moment to look at our fractured world and realize it doesn't have to be this way. That we've been called for a purpose and that every one of us has the divine image. We have a divine calling. And we're called into that world that's broken to be hands and feet of yours. Father, give us the courage to take a first step, to just open our eyes. Help us to take the next step to engage, to build a relationship, no matter what happens. And then, Father, to hang in there. In all these things, we're going to look to you for courage, for strength, for patient endurance. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Steve. What a powerful message. When I heard this after the first service, it struck me because I went to high school and middle school with Ibu Patel, the one that Steve had mentioned. And he's an interesting person because he's of Indian descent from India, but he's a Muslim. So the school I went to was majority Caucasian. And here he is, and there was, a, there was a small group of Indian, but he was an outcast in that because he was a Muslim Indian. But I used to see him, and he, he, was, a, he was a bridge builder even back then. So how much more true is that for us? What a great opportunity, what a great challenge. And if you have your bulletin, Go ahead, tear out that back part. Take the opportunity to fill out the prayer request. Who are you going to build a bridge with going forward from today? Who is that wrestling in your heart that you know that you need to take that olive branch and just do it? Let us pray with you while you do that. Let us pray for you as you go forward with that. So take this opportunity. There's pens in the seats in front of you. Maybe we could take like 30 seconds and just think about it. Who's the Lord leading you to build that bridge? And after 30 seconds, the ushers are going to 
take the opportunity to collect the offering. We're going to receive that, and we're going to continue to do what God has called us to do in this community here in La Jolla, in UTC area. So let's continue with some silence, and then we'll go into an opportunity of giving and singing.
this morning. God, we refix our gaze on you. God, to do what was just challenged to each of us this morning is refixing our gaze on him, not ourselves. May we see him anew and afresh in grace and mercy, forgiveness anew and afresh. We respond accordingly. So as we sing one final song, may we fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith. May we internalize these words and make them our prayer that God would change us. What a waste of an hour if we just came here and left not changed. There's better things to do with our time. I'd rather sit in a cafe and have a great coffee and look at the waves. But oh, if the power of the gospel really changes us and transforms us to not just be hearers but doers and living that in faith, it is the best hour spent in Des Moines. It influences our community and our, and our places that we live, work, and play for the gospel. It influences our families, and it changes the atmosphere of those things. I hope you want that this morning. Let it be more than a spiritual checklist that we're here, that we want to pursue the life of faith with reckless abandon. Amen? Let's sing this together. Grace. What have you done? Murdered for me on that cross. Accused and absence of wrong. My sin washed away in your blood. Too much to make sense of it all. But I know that your love breaks my scandal of grace you died in my place so my soul will live oh to me like you I give all I have just to know you Jesus there's no one besides you forever 
him, our community begins to see that reflection of him in us, and our community begins to change. We become the glue, the buffer that keeps everything together simply by following him and him into our community. If today you wanted to know more about this Thrive program that World Vision is doing, I'm gonna, I have some, some color brochures we'd love to give you if that just was something on your heart. Now stand for the benediction. To him who is able to do abundantly and exceedingly more than we could ask, think, or even imagine. To him be all glory here and forever and in the church. And may God bless you. May God go before you because we know he goes behind us and he walks with us. In his name we pray. Amen.